0: Hi, I'm James Riney. Welcome to the Core Capital Podcast. This show is about startups and technology with a focus on Japan and Asia.
1: Hi, I'm Ken. Today's guest is Andrew Chen. Andrew is a general partner at Andreessen Hollowitz, where he invests in games, AR, VR, and consumer tech startups. He's on the boards of Clubhouse, Substack, Zeely, Sleeper, Snapass, All Day Kitchens, Sandbox VR, Deforge, Maven, Practice, and Others.
0: Andrew is a prolific writer on user growth, metrics, and network effects. His blog, andrewchan.com, has been a treasure trove of insights for me personally over the years, so I was incredibly excited to read his new book, The Cold Start Problem, that perfectly packages his years of experience and content.
1: The Japanese translation of the book, "Network Effecto: Jigyō to Product ni Kakasenai de Framework," was just published this past November. In this podcast, we will ask him about his insights and framework to analyze different types of network effects.
0: All right, let's get started. Andrew, welcome to the Coral Capital Podcast. Awesome. Thank you for having me here. So your book uh, just came out, The Cold Start Problem, in Japanese is called Network Effect. And a lot of people in Japan that are really interested in building products are already tweeting about it. Uh, and so they're quite excited to read it and learn more. And I just wanted to ask, what inspired you to write the book? You know, I, I actually read it this year when it was in English, and I thought it was awesome because there's really not that much information on network effects. And it would be great to hear like the background on what inspired you to write it in the first place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a couple things that I want to say here. So the first is that Andreessen Horowitz, which is the venture capital firm that where I work, has been around for uh, 13 years now. And we've been involved with companies over the years, and one of the big things that I was so fascinated by when I first joined Andreessen Horowitz was what's so special about the companies that get really big and and become very successful versus the ones that don't and one of the things that all the partners, you know whether it's Ben Horowitz or Mark Andreessen or Jeff Jordan or many of the other people that, that I work with would almost always talk about network effects. And I was like, "Ah, oh, I've heard this word before. And, and we would talk about it sometimes at Uber, which is another company where I used to work. Um, but I would say, but how do I know that network effects are even happening? And so what I did was you know, the book was really uh, a journey for me to learn a lot by interviewing the CEOs and founders of companies like Slack and Dropbox and Tinder and folks from Google and all that good stuff. And then to basically write it all down, both for myself, but also for um, you know all the founders that I would meet over the last you know couple of years when I was investing to teach them as much as I could about this powerful concept that's in the industry. And then second thing I would just add is this is an old term. This is a term that has been around for over a hundred years. I talk about this in the book, but originally when they were building the telephone networks and it w- there was the American telephone and telegraph company, which we would now call AT&T, they talked about ideas that were like network effects. And so this is really something that's been around for a long, long time. And I just thought it was about time that we put something together to really describe the idea, especially because it's so powerful if you're building a social media company or a collaboration tool in the workplace or a marketplace company. These are all big categories of products where network effects are important. So yeah, it took
0: me three years, but I was very excited to be finished and I'm thrilled to have it in Japan. So what is a network effect? First of all, how do you know that you have one?
1: Yeah, that is a, such a classic question, this whole thing.
0: And maybe what I'll
1: do is I'll actually start with kind of a very simple definition and then I'll expand a little bit more. So So simplest definition is you need to think about it as what are products where as more people use the product that it becomes more useful over time. And to use an archaic example, you know, that would be like the telephone, right? Because if you have a telephone and none of your friends have a phone, then it's not very useful. You'll say, oh, I don't need this. Why do I have this at home? I'll go back to what I was doing before. You write letters or you go and walk over to their house. That's easier. But eventually once everyone has a telephone, then it becomes really valuable and then nobody wants to give up their phone. And of course, that's a hundred plus year old example, but a better example is why is it that WhatsApp is so popular in some countries and lime is very popular in other countries and cacao is very popular in other countries and so on. And the reason is because people get together and they start using the apps that their friends use and it becomes very sticky. And it also helps them with viral acquisition, which is the ability to grow a product through your friends, through your audience. Instead of needing to pay advertising, you can basically just have your users refer other users. That's a very important concept. And that's a type of network effect, the stickiness is the second type of network effect that I mentioned. And the third is a lot of products monetize much better when other people use it. For example, many startups use Slack. And if you have... Uh, just 10 people in your company that use Slack, okay, maybe you won't pay for it. But once you get to a point where half the people in the company use Slack or everyone uses Slack, then you probably upgrade because then you want all the features and you want searchability and you want the admin permissions, you want all these other things and it becomes much more valuable to the company as well. And so, you know, network effects, the reason why it's so powerful is once your product gets off the ground, once you've solved the cold start problem, once it's really working, then You get all these advantages and benefits, and it makes it very competitively powerful because it makes it difficult for other companies to then copy your product and just
0: compete with you. They can't just copy your features. They have to copy your network, which is much, much harder. I think a lot of people understand that network effects are really valuable. In the book, you talk about also the hard side of the network and more specifically, like how do you engineer that network effect from the get-go? How do you solve, as you say, the cold start problem?
1: Yes. Yeah. So first let, let's talk a little bit about the sides of the network, because I think that, that's a, one of the core concepts in the book. And the, the way I'll describe that is to look at the story of Wikipedia, right? We've all used Wikipedia. It's incredibly valuable. People are shocked to learn that most of Wikipedia was written by 50,000 people, right? <laughs> who just do it for fun, but it's used by hundreds of millions of people. I mean, how cool is that? That's, it's just incredible. And they do it for free. You know, who would have thought, right? And so thing that you realize when you look at a lot of these products is that There's often different roles that people take. If you're talking about YouTube or you're talking about TikTok, there's creators. And then there's people who watch the videos. If you're talking about a product like Dropbox or Google Drive or something like that, there's somebody who organizes all the files and gets a project going and then invites all their coworkers. There's multiple sides to a network. And what we find, um, you know, with this and what I found, you know, at Uber, because when I was working at Uber, I worked on both sides of the network, both the drivers as well as the riders, is that one side of the network is often much, much harder to acquire and to engage than the other side of the network. And the reason for that is, you know, you look at an Uber driver. Well, an Uber driver, they're sending maybe, you know, sometimes 50, 60 hours a week driving people around. Their work comes from the Uber driver app. And so what that means is they're very hard to get because there's fewer of them. And there might be 30, 40 times more riders than there are drivers. So drivers are much rarer and more expensive to acquire. And then the rider, they only use the product for 10 minutes at a time. They're not in it for hours and hours. And you can look at each one of those examples. Wikipedia has readers versus creators. You have products like Tinder. What you find is that men and women act as the two different sides of the network. Their behavior is very different. And so what ends up happening is you have to design your strategy to solve the cold start problem, to make sure that you get enough of the hard side of the network. That's the side of the network that's most difficult to get. And you usually have to solve something very powerful for them in order to get them onto the service. And if you do, then it's much easier to get the other side of the network. And so each one of these products has that dynamic. How did Tinder solve the cold start problem? Yeah, Tinder has two things that I think are really fascinating about the story. The first thing that I'll talk about is what problem are they really solving? Let's just describe that. Originally before Tinder, what everyone has to remember, this is so many years ago now, was that it used to be that online dating was a little bit more like your email inbox. You would open up your app, this is the match.com or eHarmony back in the day, and you would browse a lot of profiles and you would click on a lot of profiles and then you would message all of these profiles. Then. What's the problem? The hard side of the problem, is, the hard side of the network in a dating app is the attractive people, right? And so if you have the attractive people and they're the hard side, they're the hardest people to get because there's, if you're attractive, you're a small percentage of the population that's attractive. What happens in the old style of dating sites? What happens is everyone wants to click on your profile and write you messages. So all of a sudden, the dating sites aren't fun. It's like <laughs> an email. App. You're like, you go to work and you do email and then you go home and you do more email. <laughs> what's the point of that? And so the problem you what you need to solve for the hard side is, well, as the hard side of the network, how do you make the matchmaking much better so that the hard side isn't talking to the 10,000 people that have messaged them? They're maybe only talking to a couple people at once. And so to me, in my conversations with Sean Rad, who was the founder and uh, CEO of Tinder, the way he described it is Tinder makes dating fun, especially for that side of the network, right? Because they made a bunch of choices, design choices. Number one, they made it so that you would connect using Facebook. So because you connected to Facebook, you could tell when you looked at somebody how many mutual friends you had. And that trust was very important. Number two, it would use geolocation. So if you lived in a nice part of town, you would be shown other people from the nice part of town right? That was very important because it felt like this was a person that maybe you would run into at a bar or in the mall that you might talk to anyway. And then number three, as I was saying, is if you're attractive, if you only want to have five conversations, you can swipe and you can match with five people and then you can stop matching and you can just talk to those five people, right? You don't have to get so many notifications and so many messages from all these other folks. So that was the key product insights that made Tinder successful, even from the very beginning. And of course, it's so fun with the swiping and all the early kind of mobile phone stuff. And then for them to solve the cold start problem, as soon as they developed the app, the first thing they did, they, when they tried to promote the app, they failed. And the way they failed me is because they just told their friends, Hey, come use this app. And if you think about this is at a time where online dating was not very popular. So it was almost like an insult. It was like, Hey, I think you need... (laughs) to go do online dating. And so what they realized was, we keep telling our friends to use this app. They maybe sign up and then they browse, there's 10 other people and then they leave. Okay, we need to do better than that. How do we get hundreds of people who are all single into the app at the same time? And so what they ended up doing was, what about a birthday party? USC, which is a very big, very social college. And let's take one of the really popular women and let's throw an amazing birthday party. But in order to go to the birthday party, you need to download the app and we're gonna put people in front of the house and you need to show your Tinder profile before you can go inside." And so that's what they did. And so they invited hundreds of people, 500 people to this party. And what they realized was all these people went to this party. They were very excited about the party. Everyone had fun. But there's always maybe a few people you didn't talk to at the party. Maybe where you saw maybe across the room and you said, oh, I wanna talk to that person. But you didn't. So the next day you're like, oh yeah, that app, that Tinder app, I should try it out. And then you go in and you start swiping and then it started to work. So for them, what they realized was if they could get a couple hundred college students using the app at the same time, it would start to grow and take over the entire college. And if if they did that at USC, and then they did it at UCLA, which is nearby, another college nearby, and they did it at another nearby college, then they could take over all of LA, right? And then they could grow from there. And so what they did was they created a college launch team that all they did was to go to all the colleges and throw parties and just throw tons and tons of parties. And eventually they were able to get tens of millions of users. And it was just straight up from there. And then now it's very hard to start a dating app because Tinder will always give you more matches. There's always more people. There's always Mm -hmm. more things to do.
0: Um, So to start a new app, you need to take a completely different strategy. So yeah, so that's the story of Tinder. I love that story. And in the book, you go over so many other examples that I actually had no idea about, Um, you know, Gmail, Uber, Slack, et cetera. So thank you for that. I think a lot of people that are listening might also be thinking about what are some of the common errors when trying to hack growth? Because it's not, you can just throw money at the problem, right? Obviously, you have to have, be very strategic about it. What are some bad examples?
1: I think a lot of the worst examples come from the idea that people don't understand that they have a network So you have to realize as a founder, if you build something where it becomes more powerful when more people will use it. And again, that's cooperation tools, that's marketplace companies, that's developer ecosystems. Like GitHub is also like a good example or social network. All of those things require you to build networks that are very dense. You want a lot of people using the product at the same time in the same way. And so if you realize that's the key, means that all these other things that people do are often incorrect. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Number one, a lot of people think that you should just buy advertising, right? To launch your product, especially if you are building a product inside of a bigger company. A lot of times that company is a little bit more of a traditional marketing and advertising go-to-market. And what happens is they go buy a bunch of ads. Okay, great. Now all these people, let's say a million people hear about your product. They all download your product. Here's the problem: if you've got a million people, but none of them are connected to each other, right? They're maybe only connected to one or two other people. What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen is your network is gonna be very weak. Your network effect is gonna be very weak. And maybe you'll have a lot of users for a couple days, and then what you'll see is then they'll go back down, right? And then it'll be very hard to build back up. So a lot of the best products, as a result, end up being products where people invite other people into mm. the product because that's how you build a really strong kind of dense network. So, a very related concept. Again, this is a concept that happens in a lot of larger companies as well, is they think we already have this product over here that has millions of users. And so we build a second product and we have that product advertise the new product. Then isn't that enough? And yeah. that's very easy of an idea to think about. And one of the examples that I use in the book is Google+, Plus, which is when Google tried to build the social network. And when Google tried to build the social network on the Google homepage, they put in on the homepage, hey, you should sign up for Google+. Plus." Okay, of course, when you put a link on the homepage of google.com, you're going to sign up 100 million plus people. And that's what they announced. They announced that they signed up 100 million people and then 200 million (laughs) people and then 300 million people. It was going to be so successful. And as soon as they removed the link, then it just all collapsed. And the reason was because people weren't really using it and they weren't really using it with their friends. And instead they were just clicking it like it was the billboard. It was like you were driving by a billboard that you were looking at, but you did, You never came back. And so those are two of the really big things. And so instead of doing that, I always think about in, in the book, I call it the atomic network. What is the smallest network that you can build so that people are really engaged? And for Tinder, that was 500 people. They needed to get a few hundred people for that use case. For Zoom or FaceTime, for video calling, it might only be two or three people. And if you can talk to your mom over video and Zoom is the way that she wants to do it, great, we're using Zoom. Like that's how it's going to work. And so that's very powerful. Or maybe when it comes to something like Slack, um, you need 10 people, you need your team to use it. You don't need everyone in the company. You don't need 500 people to use it, but you might need 10 people to use it. So I think being very... Clear about how big the network needs to be for the product to be successful is key. And then you need to build one of those networks and then a second of those networks and a third one. And then you can learn how to build hundreds or thousands and build many more, like the way that Uber launched each city independently or Tinder launched the campuses independently or how Slack sells from company to company. But this is, there's a reason why these networked products end up being very focused on these individual networks and stealing them as opposed to. You know, what I was saying early on, that's a big mistake is this big bang launch with advertising or announcements or cross promotion, where you build very weak
0: networks. You just want to avoid that. So over the past few years, we've had this abundance of capital where startups have been able to raise a lot and pour a lot of money into marketing, promotion, et cetera. And that makes it a lot harder to sift through the noise, but as an investor, looking for these network effects, what are some of the metrics that you look for or what are metrics that are like red flags when you're looking into the data? Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's an awesome question because for all of us that are in the tech industry and 22, all of a sudden the whole world's changed, right? We're in a very different environment for startups and we have to be very careful about where we spend our money. And so, yeah, I think that's a great question. The first thing I would say there is the days of, to grow, you need to spend a lot of money. You know, high growth, high burn, I think that's over. But now we're in an environment where people really reward efficiency Mm -hmm. and you might even take a lower growth rate, but a more efficient company and nothing's more efficient, by the way, than having your users refer, your customers refer more customers. That's the Mm -hmm. best. Right, and so I think that's where network effects will be really strong there. And then I think, as far as metrics go, you know, what I would tell you when I look at this, I think I try to separate out acquisition versus retention versus engagement. They can be related, but I try to separate the three of the bad. Maybe I would add monetization to that as well. What what, what I mean by that, is first and foremost, if you have a product that is great, it needs to be sticky. And so I always look at what the retention on day thirty of a user after they signed up. You want over 50%, if you can, of the users who signed up to be active on the 30th day. And certain, some products, it's naturally lower. If you're building like a real estate product, okay, that's going to be lower. And some products will be naturally higher. If it's a messaging app, maybe it should be 50%. Who knows, right? But you want to make sure that the number is relatively high. Um, I care a lot about also how active are those users, right? And so people often use like daily active over monthly active as a ratio to measure that. If you're a workplace product okay maybe you're only acting three four five days because that's the number of work days but again if it's a messaging app it's a communication app then you want it to be ideally as close to uh five six seven days per week Mm -hmm. as possible so i I think about that and then very importantly james and ken i think about it as how do you overlay the network over it right and there's two ways that i think about that it's one is Are the networks that are more dense and more built out, do they have even higher metrics than the smaller networks? Right? I'll give you an example. If I met the Tinder team right after they had launched in five or six different colleges very early, I might say, okay, you launched at USC as your first one. Give me the retention metrics of that college. And then now show me a new college and show me what those metrics are. And what they should be able to tell me is as more people sign up at the college, all of the metrics should get better. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that's so important is that tells me the story that some of the newest colleges that they sign up, even if the metrics are a little bit low, that they're going to go better over time. And maybe even USC, maybe some of their older schools are going to just get better and better and better. So you need to be able to compare networks. I think that's very important. And so once you have that, then I tend to look at viral acquisition. I like to look at what percentage organic, what percentage of your customer acquisition is organic. A lot of people in a world where there's a lot of money floating around, they tend to talk about cost of customers, cost of acquired customers, so CAC versus lifetime value, LTV. And when you look at CAC versus LTV, the problem is, you know, that uses a lot of money, right? And sometimes the LTV starts to go down over time because your users are less valuable and they're they're lower intense and all this other stuff. And so what I care about is, do you have over 50% of your users coming in organically? Are people just telling each other? One thing I also love is when startups come and talk to me, this isn't a metric, but I'll just go onto Twitter and Instagram and Reddit. And I just think, are people talking about this product? If this product is so good, they should be talking about it. What are they saying about it? I care about all of that because those are the indication to me that it's a real phenomenon and it's something real that is really sticky and the networks are being developed over time. And I look at some set of all of those metrics and all of those social media exhaust in order to figure out if it's
0: it's real or... Okay. Another topic I wanted to cover is uh, Clubhouse. So Clubhouse was huge in Japan. I mean, huge. It was just like all of a sudden. I mean, I guess it was huge everywhere, but from my perspective, it was like overnight. And I, I just thought it would be really interesting to, to hear what it was like behind the scenes. Right. Yeah, yeah. The Clubhouse story is, is such a great one. And Paul and, and Rohan are the best guys.
1: I love working with them. They're, they're you know, heads down building clubhouse right now and I can kind of give a little bit of the of the background there. So yeah. So when we invested, I was the, one of the first hundred or so users on the platform. And I happened to know Paul for various things as he he had a startup and I had a startup and we had a few friends together um that to put us together, uh, including Baba Mirarka, who's one of my one of my best friends. Um and, and so you know we kind of knew each other for a long time. And then he he was working on a lot of different ideas originally. I mean he had one idea which was kind of like a podcasting, you know, tool. How do you make podcasting easier? And he was like, ah, no matter what I do, it's just so hard, podcasting is just so hard. As you guys know, it's almost like a job, you know, to be a podcaster, right? It's not something that you think of as being fun or easy. Uh, you know, there's editing, there's uh, booking guests, there's all this stuff. And, uh, and Rohan that and also the other co-founder worked on a bunch of ideas, including um, some ideas where you would, uh, you know, how do you use the time between your meetings to quickly call a list of people. So they were playing around with this idea of audio and what would happen with audio. And so they began to build a Clubhouse and um, and the very first version of Clubhouse I saw only had one room. And it was just Paul and Rohan and you could come in and just talk to just the two of them. And it was just fun. It's a very fun experience and you couldn't have more than one room and like that was it. And it was just Silicon Valley tech people. And of course, this is in the middle of COVID. So everyone was very much aching for more human connection. And what they started to do was they realized, of course, once they got that and it was working, they had great retention, very sticky product. Then they said, oh, of course, we need to be able to build a second room and a third room. They really used that concept of, um, we didn't use the terminology at the time, but they were really building atomic networks. But instead of thinking about the atomic networks as being your college, instead, it was like groups of topics and interests
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and.
1: They used that and also the ability for people to invite other people into the app. So the whole invite mechanism on, and they, you know, just hit it out of the park at an amazing time. And so the company was, I think maybe 10 people and they were adding millions of users every week. It was just like incredible. And then they could going all over the world. And we heard that um, at the time we we're like, oh my God, there's so many people in Japan on the app. <laughs> But by the way, there were all these people in Japan using the app, but you, we couldn't even create clubs for people in Japan because to create a club, you had to email clubhouse and of course clubhouse, the company Mm. only had 10 people. Right. And so we couldn't even make clubs for people. None of it was, we didn't have an Android app. We didn't have any of these things. And so the story of clubhouse, I think is really just an explosively viral product at the right time grew very fast. Really Paul says the company almost the product grew almost too fast. And I think, you know, over the last year, and I'm so excited for all the new things that are going to be coming out uh, of the company, they've really used the time to um, hire a a proper team and to build a lot of features and to ship a lot. And, you know, they have lots of money, lots of runway. And so they're busy building uh, the company. still have tons of users. um, And so we're very excited about the next chapter. And we think that there's going to be a lot more that you can do um, in audio. And we think Clubhouse is the company that's going to figure it out. So yeah, it was a super fun experience to just see it go all over the world.
0: What do you think was the tipping point from Japan? Did there Was there one thing that happened that just like set and, Japan no, no, off no. on this like rocket ship? Yeah. Just-
1: yeah, I think what we saw was a couple of things. Yeah, I think the first thing was that the invite only mechanism was mm-hmm. incredible. And I think because it was very focused, the company was very good at connected to the top tech people. What we found was that a lot of the top tech people, and then a lot of their celebrity friends would get on the platform and they would tweet about it. And people would be like, oh my God, I want to, you know, and it's kind of ephemeral, right? Like if you're in a room with somebody talking on clubhouse, you have like Elon Musk, like talking to the Robinhood guys, you know, live Robin Robinhood. Like that's like, were you in the room for that? Like, if you weren't mm-hmm. in the room, like, oh my God, like, you, feel like you really missed out. Yeah, exactly. So it's just such an amazing, you know, unique thing. And so, yeah, what happened in Japan, I think was very similar to what happened in a lot of countries, which was you had a couple key influencers publicize their involvement with the app and then everyone would just talk about it because it was just so incredible as a launch strategy. So they certainly solved the cold start problem in a 10 out of 10 way, just an amazing way, just by doing the launch this way.
0: Okay. Another thing I was curious about is the Uber launch in Japan and ultimately Uber, the ride sharing app, it didn't work out, but Uber Eats did. It was a massive success in Japan. And I'm curious, I'm not sure about the timing as to when you were focused on growth and how much you were involved in Japan, but I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on why Uber itself was not successful in Japan, but Uber Eats was this like mega success and yeah. what was happening behind the scenes there. Yeah, that's right. That's
1: right. The thing about Uber that I think is
0: very complex on a country by country, city by
1: city basis is the hard side of the network is drivers, okay? And the very first version of the drivers that everybody worked on was like limo drivers, right? And like black car drivers, these professional licensed drivers. And in the U.S., you have to understand the taxi service is not good, right? It's dirty, it's, they weren't taking credit cards. You would stand and hold out your hand and you would want a taxi and they would just drive right past you. It's you know, Not like Japan. I've yeah. been to Japan. I've used the taxi service in Japan. It's wonderful. You guys do an amazing job. In the U.S., that is not true. Necessity is a mother of all inventions. Especially San Francisco. San Francisco is unlike New York. New York has taxis going around all the time. San Francisco, you have to call a taxi. And when you call a taxi in San Francisco, this is before Uber and everything. If the driver on the way to coming to your house saw somebody just raising their hand, they would just quit and they would just <laughs> take, pick up the driver. It was just crazy. Yeah. Because of all of that, Uber originally was based on licensed drivers. The problem with having only licensed drivers is that the hard side of the network is just too hard. And so what Uber began to see was companies, other startups, other competitors like Sidecar and Lyft start to take any driver, unlicensed drivers, and then begin to allow them to drive people around. And they would use Uber's technology to do verification and handle complaints and things like that. So I know in Japan, I think it was an uphill battle for Uber as a rideshare company for a few reasons. I think the first reason is the taxi system in Japan is quite big. That's just the reality of it that, that makes it much harder. The second thing is, if I recall correctly, the, Japan was a licensed market, which means that not anyone could drive on Uber. You needed to have a license to do it. New York was a licensed market. A lot of Europe is a licensed market as well. So what that does is it makes it harder for Uber to grow the number of potential people on the hard side. Because once you get a lot more supply, then you can drop prices, right? And people will then start to use the taxi service more, the ride share service more regularly. And so because Uber was fixed to the same drivers as the Japanese taxi system, it made it very difficult. Now, my guess is, and I, again, I, I don't know, James, you tell me, but my guess is that the, to d- deliver food... On the other hand, you don't have to be licensed. Is that no, true? No, you don't.
0: You don't. Yeah.
1: No, yeah. But yeah. Wasn't okay, an exactly. incumbent. That's right. So because of that, and also, yeah, I mean, there was obviously always I'm sure there was food delivery before Uber eats. But there was, um, yeah. But no licenses. But no licenses. And so then Uber can use its technology and the ability to aggregate a network in a way where then it can actually operate the network and have real advantages. So the short answer to your question is look, if you're operating a network effects driven business, but you have a regulatory, like a government rule that you can't grow one side of your network faster That's than something. what exists in the market, it's gonna make your network effects much weaker. And so for companies that have to deal with that, it's something that you always have to think about it. Look, Uber is a good example where it's, you have licensed drivers and people who are unlicensed drivers, by the way, I don't know how it is in Japan, but in the U.S., education is like that. You can be a tutor or you can be a teacher, right? And the teacher is the licensed version and the tutor is the un- unlicensed version. You can mm-hmm. be a nurse or a caretaker. If you're like the elderly, right, nurses, there's a nursing shortage. Nurses are very expensive. Can you hire a caretaker? You just come and walk the dog and get some groceries. Yeah, you can do that, right? So there's a lot of these very interesting businesses, which are Expanding the hard side of the network by providing a set of unlicensed services, and you just have to be very careful that you don't end up getting regulated because you're trying to do too much. But that is, mm-hmm. I think, a very interesting insight. Which is, you look at all the jobs, all the professions that are licensed in your country, and you figure out what is the unlicensed version, and can use technology to create mm-hmm. a cheaper, better, larger, more comprehensive. Version of the same service, that's especially if it's cheaper and it can be monitored with quality, then you can often do a better job than the licensed service. And I think that's a great way to think about new companies to start.
0: Okay. All right. And so it's been a year since the book was published, right? Yeah, yeah. It was published in the US last December. Yep. 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 So a year has passed. If you had written the book today, what would you add to the book?
1: Well, I've been completely thrilled by the reception of the book. It's nearing 100,000 units. I'm hopeful with the Japanese launch. And then there's also going to be a Chinese launch early next year. So I'm very excited about that. I think the book references a lot of companies that are amazing companies that have been started in the last 10 years. We're talking about companies like Uber and Airbnb and LinkedIn and Instagram and PayPal and all these guys. And I also, by the way, I tried very hard to use historical examples like credit cards, because credit cards Mm -hmm. are actually a network effect and coupons are actually a network effect and so on. But I think if I were to rewrite the book today, I would add a lot more about Web3. I would add a lot more about the applications that people are trying to develop in Web3, like Web3 gaming. I think that's very interesting. I think we've also figured out, we were just chatting about this right at the beginning, is that since publishing the book, I've actually moved over to work on Games Fund One, which is a new games-focused fund at A16Z, And we're focused on investing in avatars and the metaverse and new gaming opportunities and all that other stuff. And I think one of the things that we found is like, when you talk to 12-year-old kids and you say, hey, what kinds of apps are you using? What kinds of things are you doing? They are playing games the same way that adults use They talk to their friends. That's how they hang out with their friends. That's how they keep up with people. That's how they do everything. And so because of that, we really believe that Minecraft and Roblox and Fortnite and League of Legends, that the next generation of social networks will look more like that. And those are truly network effect businesses, because look, if I'm playing, if I have to choose between playing League of Legends and Dota, and it turns out that all my friends play League and none of them play Dota or the other way around. I'm just going to play what my friends play. And same with the shooters and same with all these. And then products like Discord and products like Twitch are another kind of flavor of that. So I would probably put a lot more about that, Web3 and then gaming. And then the other angle I would tell you is people are just so creative about the ways that they are making money online and earning a living online. We're seeing a lot of people um, becoming content creators full-time. There's people, I have a company called Substack that where Chris and uh, Jeraj and, and Hamish have started this amazing company that allows writers to, to make a living publishing a new newsletter and, and a podcast and all that. And people are making millions of dollars a year in that. And that's becoming more and more of a network every day. Like I'm very excited about that creator economy, you know, segment of the market as well. We have, we have a lot of new, interesting companies in video. Also, my colleague Connie Chan has a company called Whatnot which is doing a live video marketplace, selling things online. That's really interesting and fantastic. So it goes on and on, but I would just say it's hard to predict the future. I think I have the lucky job of somebody who um, gets to sit back and hang out with founders and founders tell me where the world is going to go and, and I can spend my time trying to help them uh, you know, get there. So yeah, it's a very fun job, but that, those are the things I would put in the book.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and insights. And uh, for everyone in the audience, please pick up the book. I read it front to back. It was amazing. And just a funny side story. I actually got COVID and was stranded in the middle of the ocean in Indonesia when I was scuba diving. And this book got me through it. So I really enjoyed it. Read everything Amazing. is highlighted, and it was really interesting. like it's very rare that I read front to back. There's not that much information. like you hear a lot of information about SaaS metrics and like how to build SaaS companies and lots of like playbooks on that. But on network effects, like you don't really hear that much, actually. Everyone knows it as an uh, an important part of building a startup, and yet there there really isn't like the Bible for this, so I, I would put that in that category. So thanks for thanks so much for writing it. Awesome. All right. well, thanks, guys. Go. Thank you for having me.